We want to make sure that we are in our Bibles, so if you need one, please slip your hand up and we will bring you a Bible. If you don't own one, you can keep this one. Right, just write your name in the front, keep it. Uh, it's yours. But being in the Bible is important. As we're going to especially see that today. Because I think oftentimes when we have conversations with those who doubt what we celebrate every Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's easy for us to go first to evidential arguments, uh, which are compelling, to be sure. Uh, how else do you explain the empty tomb? How else do you explain uh, what even atheist historians affirm about what actually happened in those events? It could be really powerful to look back at history and think about uh, arguments. But arguments will never get you in the door. You might even think, what? I wish I was there. If I were there, I just saw it for myself, saw the empty tomb for myself, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because it never took evidence, even for the people that had the evidence right in front of them. So what's it take? Jesus tells us. I want you to go with me to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read almost the entire chapter by the time we're done. It won't be really long, but I do want to make sure that we get these verses out in front of us and let Scripture speak. Luke chapter 24. It's the third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And the, the point I want to strike with you, score with you right now, is that if I were there, if I don't believe now in the resurrection, and if I were there, I still wouldn't. We would still miss it. Because we need faith, not evidence. Let's, let's look at the first few verses, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He went home marveling at what had happened, but it doesn't say that he went home completely understanding everything that happened because the understanding wasn't there yet. He's still, in a sense, blind to what is going on, even though the tomb is empty. And you'll notice that the angels referred to what had been told to them. You were told this before, and you're not clinging to what was told to you. You're still trying to use your eyes, and you're still trying to make sense of the evidence in front of you, and it's not computing for you. 
what you need to be reminded of was what was told to you before. And they remembered it, but they're trying to put the pieces together, and they can't quite do it yet. So in verse 6, he reminds them, the angel reminds them of how they were told. And then you see later in verse 11 how they kind of take it. These words seemed like a tale. It seemed, still seemed like a fairy tale, even though they can go and investigate the empty tomb themselves. So they're not going back 2,000 years. It's right there in front of them. They can investigate it themselves, but it still seems like a tale. They don't get it. Then two specific disciples kind of show this wrestling that all of us have. When you're presented with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what to do with it, two disciples kind of showcase what's going on here in verse 13. And they have an interesting encounter with Jesus. But this exposes the confusion. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And while they were talking with each other about all these things, the, the, the suffering, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, what the ladies are reporting about it, Peter went and looked at it himself, perhaps they had. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So this is the resurrected Jesus coming alongside a conversation about him, but they don't quite recognize him yet, so he's like, what are you guys talking about? I want, I want in, but this is interesting. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. The question stopped them dead in their tracks. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> Jesus just obviously playing... Uh, like he doesn't know. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they had, did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So you hear them explaining, here's the report, here's the hope that we had, here's the expectation that we had, and we are let down. And we are saddened. We know that they don't quite get the resurrection because they're stopped dead in their tracks, not because they're like, haven't you heard? He was killed and he came back. They go, haven't you heard? He was killed and we had hoped he was the redeemer. So they're, they're basically saying, well, our hopes are crushed. Like he, he got killed. Where's his body? I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. That's messed up. We can't even go and mourn him now so sad. And you'd expect Jesus to kind of understand, right, and go, hey guys, just kidding, it's me, you know. He rebukes them. Isn't that interesting? He calls them foolish and slow of faith. Listen, drop down to verse 
13. Oh, 35, thank you. 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, not very loving, and slow of heart to believe. So what was foolish about them was the slowness of their hearts to grip what's going on with faith. Slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here you've got these sad-looking disciples who've lost their hope, and instead of Jesus telling them, hey, don't worry about it, he calls them foolish and lacking faith, slow in faith, slow to believe, and he doesn't call them foolish because they don't believe the evidence. He doesn't say, go to the tomb yourself. How foolish can you be? I'm not there. What did I do? Slip past the guards? Put them to sleep? Did I, did I use hypnosis? He doesn't use evidence. He calls them foolish because they didn't believe the Bible. Hmm. You're witnessing to your neighbor, you're witnessing to your cousin, you're witnessing to your friend, and you're mounting evidence upon evidence, and they're like, nah, I don't believe. And you're like, ah, I need more than the Bible. No, give them scripture. It's not that evidence doesn't matter. Evidence is great. That's, that's great. I love apologetics. But apologetics based on evidence rather than based on scripture is not Jesus' form of apologetics. Jesus rebukes them for being foolish because they didn't believe what was written. That's interesting. He wants them to go back to Scripture and see all that Moses, all that the prophets, and all the Scriptures said about these things concerning himself. What things? He's not just saying, you'll find me in the Old Testament, like, where's Waldo? I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Like, the where's Waldo books, the the busy picture, and you got to find the dude. He's not saying it's a where's Waldo book. He's saying the Old Testament books are ultimately about... Not just a person, but the suffering and the glory that I'm to enter. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's shown to be necessary because Scripture said it. So Jesus' rebuke is not that you should have gone back to the tomb. You need to be better at forensic analysis. No, his rebuke is, you haven't been reading your Bible as well. That's the rebuke. The Bible bears it out. The Bible from the beginning has always shown that it would be necessary, not just that there would be a random Messiah or a specific Messiah, but a specific Messiah that would do a specific thing, suffer and enter glory, die and rise again. That's pretty specific. And if you were to go home today over your Easter lunch, Look back through the Old Testament and find a specific verse that says Jesus is going to die and then three days later rise again. Good luck finding a straight prediction. But all over the New Testament, Jesus explains. It It was written. It was explained to you. And he doesn't say, I know you didn't see it. I know it's so buried. It's really hard to get. But let me explain it to you. He goes, I can't believe you don't see this yet. Let me explain it to you. That's different. It's different to tell somebody, yeah, I get it. It's really cryptic. It's really hard to, to see it. But let, let me show you. But instead, no, it's because you're foolish and slow of heart to believe that you don't see it. 
out. And he's not talking to people that don't care about the Bible, don't read the Bible. They read the Bible. They're disciples. And he's like, you, you, still, you still don't understand Scripture or how Scripture works. And I'm talking to brothers and sisters here. When you use the Bible to communicate to your unsaved friends and you can't see Christ in the Old Testament, we're foolishly trying to talk to others about Christ. Because we still don't know how to handle the scriptures. We don't want to be foolish and slow of heart to believe, trying to convince other people to join the wisdom of God and Christ. Come and see that the Lord is good. We still can't see how the Lord is good because we don't see it in scripture. So Jesus is not, I don't think he's against using evidence. Evidence is cool. But scripture takes precedence to evidence. And so if somebody chooses not to believe because Scripture says it, they're not going to believe it because evidence says it. Now you might have a testimony here where you go, no, but I remember listening to a lecture and there was a lot of evidence and that prompted me. Yeah, they may have sparked something in you, but ultimately it's the Word of God that you responded to. The gospel call comes from Scripture. And so the Old Testament is how they were supposed to already know that Jesus was going to suffer and die and rise again to enter his glory. They were supposed to know that from Old Testament Scripture. Because Christ's death and resurrection is all over the Bible, including the Old Testament. Even if it's hard to find a straight prediction, the Old Testament is full of hints and intimations and allusions and patterns that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now I thought, hmm, you know, Easter Sunday, guess, how nerdy do we want to get? I don't know. We're nerdy here, so this is, this is it. This is CFC. I want you to understand that the Old Testament isn't full of stories about a mean, angry God, and then the New Testament is a story about Jesus who comes, and he's like, sorry about my angry dad. He's really grumpy. Let me help you out. Incorrect. Incorrect. God was always loving because he always planned to send his son to take death for you and rise again to defeat death for you from the Old Testament. So a couple of quick examples, and then two examples that we'll unpack just a little bit more. You don't have to turn to any of these passages, but you can if you want to. Remember we were just there, Leviticus 14, when somebody was diseased in their skin, they needed to be cleansed because that disease represented distance from God. It represented lack of holiness. We cannot be in God's presence when we are diseased. And so when the leper looked like they were better, they would have to take two birds, kill one of them, and free the other one. You remember that? One bird would be killed, blood spilled out, and then the other bird would be rolled around in the spilt blood, mixed with some other stuff, and then set, set free. The second bird gets to go free. One takes death, one takes life. One takes the punishment, the other one flies away with it. Well, there's a death, and figuratively speaking, a resurrection, because they're communicating to the leper, your disease is gone, you're back into community now, you don't have to be outcast anymore, you have your life back. So you're like the bird, but something has to die to get you clean. Well, one bird can't do both, so they needed to bring two birds. But does that project something into the future 
of how, how we get clean? Of course it does. Death needs to happen. A resurrection needs to be happened. It can't stay dead. There needs to be a, a freedom. There needs to be life. You remember Genesis 3.15 in the very beginning. As soon as we got into this mess, uh, Eve bites the, the, the fruit. Adam is right there. He takes it. He bites the fruit, and they fall. And God comes down, and he curses the serpent first. And he promises that the seed of the serpent will war against the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent's seed will bruise the heel of the woman. Who are the serpent seed? You remember when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees? He's like, your, your, your father's not Abraham. Your father's the devil. What's he telling them? Back in Genesis 3.15, the seed that was promised that would crush the seed of the woman, that's you because you're going to kill me. He tells them that. But he doesn't stay dead. He gets up. He rises again. So how does the seed who's struck by the serpent crush the head? By living. It's not a death blow. He's going to strike the death blow to death itself. It's embedded in Genesis 3.15. It's pushed all the way through the Old Testament. You remember Genesis 22. Again, you don't have to turn there. Genesis 22, I mean, this is... uh, It presents a picture. God orchestrates this to present the picture that we need. In Genesis 22, Abraham finally gets this son that he was promised. He can't have a son. He can't biologically have children. God promised that he would have a son and that through this son would come blessing to all the world, right? And then in Genesis 22, God says, I want you to take this son, the only son that you have, the son that you love. Very similar language to how God addresses Jesus. I want you to take this son and take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Not like metaphorically, like literally make him a burnt offering. So Abraham gathers a bunch of sticks. He takes the sticks, the wood pile, and puts it on his son. And his son takes the wood of the sacrifice on his back and hikes up the mountain to go be the sacrifice at the top of the mountain. The text tells us very specifically in Genesis 22 that It was on the third day where God stepped in, where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, and God stepped in and said, no, 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 I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And figuratively speaking, he gets Isaac back. He was as good as dead, and now he gets Isaac back. Three days of climbing the mountain, knowing there's death, knowing that this one son is going to be wiped out, and then on the third day find out, no, he's alive. How? Through God's provision. So does that create a pattern? Does that create a picture? Of course it does. The one son of promise, the one son who bears the blessing for the whole world, he gets killed, he was about to get killed, he's as good as dead, and it looks like all the world's blessings are compromised. This is why the disciples are sad. We, ha- we hoped he was it. We hoped he had the blessing. He was the hope of all of Israel, that he would redeem us. And it looks compromised through the death. But it's not compromised because Jesus comes back from the dead. He comes down from the mountain. And so we see that, of course, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. When he stops Abraham and tells him, I'm going to provide the sacrifice, he's not talking ultimately about the animal caught in the thicket. He's talking about eventually I'm going to take care of this gap between you and me. The uncleanliness that allows you to not be in my holiness, I'm going to take care of that eventually. And it's not going to be from the blood of bulls and goats like we learned on Friday night. So you look at something like Genesis 22, and you see a pattern there. And when you see Jesus rebuking the disciples, how come you didn't see this? That's the kind of stuff he's talking about. 
Now, how do we read Genesis 22? We should make big sacrifices for God. When God calls you to do something really special, don't hesitate. Be like Abraham. Climb that mountain and be willing to sacrifice your job. Be willing to sacrifice your... Is that true? Yeah, I guess that's true. But is that what Genesis 22 is about? No. That's not what Genesis 22 is about. Genesis 22 is about God saying, no, 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 I'll provide the sacrifice because your sacrifice can't do it. Well, that's kind of opposite from charge the hill and take command of your own destiny for God. So we see if we mishandle Scripture, we mishandle the gospel. But how do you correctly handle Scripture? Jesus is saying, see me in it. You were always supposed to see me in it. One more example. I'm trying to use stories that are familiar from the Old Testament. And many of us, ever, if we've ever been in Sunday school as a kid, you remember the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is an interesting one because dude is swallowed by a fish, man, and then spit back out. So it's just, it's, it's funny, it's humorous, it's ironic, it's weird. Uh, I don't think we need to spend time, well, what kind of fish could that have been? And uh, missing the point. But Jonah is a preacher, and Jonah is called to preach to a very wicked people. I mean, you, any historian, serious historians will tell you how wicked the Ninevites were, and he's called to go preach to them, and Jonah doesn't want to do it. And the reason why Jonah doesn't want to do it is because he says, I know if I go preach to them, you're the kind of God that will go ahead and forgive these kind of people. I don't want to give them a chance. I want them to burn. And so he sails the opposite direction. He jumps on a ship with a bunch of sailors heading in the opposite direction. So a great wind comes over the sea, and the ship is going to be breaking apart, and they're going to drown, and even the experienced sailors themselves are scared to death. And they see Jonah taking a nap. He, due to sleeping, right? So they wake him up. Hey, what are you doing? Do something. Call upon your God or something. Where are you from again? You know? Jonah recognizes, look, the storm is my fault, so toss me over, and you'll be fine. They don't, they're reluctant to do that because they don't want his God to judge them and this kind of thing. But eventually they're like, uh, please don't hold this against us, hold this against us. And they throw him over. The storm is calm. The sailors worship God, at least according to what they know about him. Jonah swallowed by this fish because God is like, you're not going to derail my plan with suicide, bro. Okay? So he rescues him from the drowning. Three days under the ocean, and then spit back out. And then he goes and preaches a, a real reluctant message, like, yeah, yeah, repent. Like, it's really short, it's kind of lame, it's not a very good sermon. And he just walks through the city, just, yeah, 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 repent. They repent. And the book ends with Jonah sitting on a hill, fuming. I can't believe they repented and God forgave them. These evil people. Puh. What kind of preacher is that? So God makes a branch grow into a tree that gives him shade in the hot sun. Yes, he's relieved from the hot sun. I don't know why he just didn't move, but there's a shade. Wow, he must have been sitting there a long time. The thing grew. I don't know. And he's provided with shade, and he loves that, and he's got his pina colada, and he's relaxing. And then God sends a worm to eat the tree, and now he's like, what? Where's the shade? Now he's mad that he doesn't have the shade that he had, even though he didn't have it in the beginning. God takes and he gives. He gives and he takes. Who are you to tell me who to give shade to and who to scorch? Who are you to tell me? When I create the shade, 
I created these people, the Ninevites. God doesn't defend them. God doesn't say they're not really that wicked. No, they're wicked. I retain the right to show them mercy. Now, you can imagine what is going on in Jonah's head because the conversation doesn't end. The book just ends. You're like, where's chapter 5? The book just ends. Leaving you, the reader, wrestling with that dilemma. How does God demonstrate mercy to an evil people if what they deserve is his wrath? Well, it's embedded in the story. All throughout the Bible, waters, floodwaters represent judgment. That's how he killed the Egyptians. It's how he spoke order into the world in the beginning. What was the world? It was formless and void. It was a ball of water. And he lets the land appear and animals come. And he creates order out of this void chaos. In the fall, things were back down into a chaotic order. It's a mess. Right? So the waters often represent judgment. And when you read Revelation, you're reading about the new earth, there's going to be no sea. We can debate whether there's going to be lakes, rivers, is it literal, how about oceans? The point is that that judgment, that dark uh, representation of God's wrath is going to be handled and taken care of in the new earth. It won't be there. So God sends his wrath in the form of a storm. Jonah goes over the side of the boat, and then the wrath is ceased. The wrath is blocked, and the sailors are saved because Jonah took the hit. So how does God save anyone from the wrath of his storm? Someone's got to take it. Someone's got to go down in it. And in the story of Jonah, that someone is down there for three days and boop, pops back out. He took the judgment and still lives. So the story ends by going, how is God going to solve wrath and justice? How how does he get to be merciful and still just at the same time? It's embedded in the book. You go back to the book and read it again. And you go, I think it's going to have something to do with someone who's going to take that wrath so the others can live and worship. And that someone has to come up out of the death and out of the judgment to proclaim the gospel, to spread it to the other people. That's Jesus. Remember Mark 4, Jesus says it himself. He reenacts it. The disciples are on a boat. They're trying to cross the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes, a great windstorm. The disciples are looking around. They're like, where's Jesus? What's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. (laughs) What do they do? They wake him up, and they're like, hey, Rabbi, can you help us out? They're like, come on. Hey, they probably snatched the pillow from under his head. What are you doing? Don't you know we're going to die? So Jesus gets up, and he rebukes the storm, and then he rebukes the disciples for not having faith. What is it that they didn't believe about Jesus? What did they want him to do when they woke him up? Grab an oar? Grab a bucket? Help control the boat? Maybe say a special prayer that the Father will listen to? Jesus saying, if you knew who I was when you woke me up, you wouldn't even be scared. Because he handles it. Now Jonah went down in the ocean to take the judgment. Jesus demonstrates in that moment that he's God over the ocean, over the water. He is Lord over it. But again and again, he would tell the Pharisees who would ask him, can you give us a sign? Show us a sign from heaven. Like, how about lightning or levitation? Do something cool. Do so, Wow us somehow to help us understand that, that you are who you say you are. And he goes, no, you don't get a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the belly 
of the fish for three days. The Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. How does Jesus want us to read Jonah? Hey guys, when God has a calling on your life, don't run in the opposite direction. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. But the problem is I'm always running in the opposite stinking direction. How do I get to live? The problem that I have is I hate the Ninevites because I am a Ninevite. I fail and I'm lost. So what does God do with the wrath that's duly just, just, uh, justly due to me? He has to take it. He has to take it. And Jonah was always about that. Jesus isn't mangling Jonah to try to get us there. It was always about that. And what does Jesus say to these two disciples? He didn't just go to Jonah. He didn't just go to Genesis. It's all over Scripture. All of Scripture pushes the same agenda. If you've ever tried to get into the Bible and you try to flip around, you're like, hmm, what's this got for me? What's this got for me? I'm feeling down today. What's a passage? You might even have a little book on your nightstand that has topics. If you're feeling down, read this verse. If you're feeling angry, read that verse. The Bible is not a cabinet full of pills to pop when you're in a certain mood. When you open Scripture, you don't look for your mood. You look for the gospel. It's all over the Scriptures. And so what we see in Luke 24 is Jesus teaching his disciples that they should understand the resurrection not by investigating the tomb and interviewing the guards and finding out what happened. They should know it already because it was said in Scripture. It was foretold in the Old Testament. It's what the entire Bible is about. And if you've always felt like the Bible's a little foreign, maybe this will help. We don't want to go in there looking for self-help tips. We want to understand that self-help doesn't work. What does God do so that I can receive help that I can't provide myself? That's the correct posture to approach Scripture, and the answer will come to you. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in his life and his death and his resurrection. How do these disciples respond to this? Man, I, I, I love this. The disciples' hearts burn with faith because Jesus showed them his suffering and glory from Scripture. Look at verses 28 and following. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. There's where it's from. And has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Just like Jesus to finally unveil their eyes by leading them in a time of communion. Beautiful. He demonstrates the gospel to them in the bread. And they make the connection. Wow, this is him. It's revealed to them that he is it. And you see how they talk about the effect that Scripture had on them when it opened to them that the gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. Did not our hearts burn within us? What is the, are they having heartburn? Do they need Tums? Or do they mean, this is like a heartwarming story, a phrase we might use. I love that movie. It's such a heartwarming story. 
Not what this means. It means they had the Old Testament, they read the scriptures, but it didn't quite have the effect of faith. What does Jesus rebuke them for not having? Faith. They're slow of heart to believe. Their hearts are slow to believe, and now it's burning on fire with faith. Why? Because they see how the gospel permeates the Old Testament. That's why. They see that the point of reading the Bible is the suffering and glory of the Son. Now, why does that make someone's heart burn? Why would that have that kind of effect on a person? It's not because, wow, that's so impressive that all these different authors across different centuries all connect somehow. Very cool. That's not it, though. Wow, it's so impressive that Jesus is dead, and he's so powerful. I mean, like, he doesn't need an infinity gauntlet, right? He's, he's like the greatest superhero ever. He comes back from the dead. So impressive. Let's make a movie of him. Very powerful, yes, still not the point. The point is what the suffering and resurrection affords you. We see that in the next paragraph. That Jesus' death and resurrection affords the forgiveness of our sins. As they were talking, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. It's almost like, boo, (laughs) but in a nice way. Well, they freaked out. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Here's Luke just bringing up the problem again. Your heart is troubled. Your heart is empty. Your heart is wayward. Your heart is shriveled. Your heart is slow because you doubt. And it's not that you doubt the facts. You doubt what is happening within them what the suffering and death of Christ affords you. Verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So there's how we know Jesus is an anti-evidence. He's like, touch. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved, back to my point, they touched. They still don't get it. Evidence was presented, still didn't click. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? More evidence. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Does a ghost digest fish? He's got a physical body. I recently was talking to a Christian, and he said, Yeah, Jesus had a body. And I'm like, Right, he, and he still has. What? He's our risen Lord. He's not a ghost. The, the, the tomb is empty because he's still in bodily form. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now listen, he doesn't go, I can't believe you touched my scar and you still don't believe. He's still taking them back to the book. I was still with you, when I was still with you, I told you, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Find the resurrection in the Psalms. It's there. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Let me read that again. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Why? Not to show off power but that repentance and forgiveness 
of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Forgiveness of sins is now available because of the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, we are still stuck in our sins. That's why it's good news. It's not good news because it's a cool story, bro. It's a good news. It's good news because it affords forgiveness. You can be a complete Ninevite and be rescued by Jesus' mercy, by God's mercy that he affords us through Jesus Christ. So forgiveness of sins is what is accomplished. So therefore, if we don't believe with our hearts what Jesus is calling us to believe, what all of Scripture points to, we miss out on forgiveness. This is why the resurrection is important. This is why somebody dragged you here today, maybe. This is why we proclaim this, not on Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. And so whatever text we're in, Leviticus, Luke, everything in between, we proclaim our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ because if we don't, we have nothing to offer you as a church. We have nothing to offer you. If you're not freed from sin, what is the point? So if you feel like, yeah, I'm actually not that far from Ninevites, if you feel like I'm actually not that far from Jonah who hates certain people and thinks certain people are beyond God's forgiveness, I, you still need to be unstuck. I still need to be unstuck if I'm in that place. And the only way to get unstuck is by believing what Scripture guides us to believe from beginning to end. It guides our faith to be placed in the resurrection so that forgiveness can be secured for you. And this is what is proclaimed. Jesus is telling the disciples, the reason why he rebukes them is like, guys, if you don't get this, what is the point of being a disciple? You can't proclaim it to the nations if you don't have the right message. What are you going to tell people about all this stuff that happened? All you'll have is facts. All you'll have is hearsay. All you have is some evidential argumentation but you won't have what's needed for anyone to believe. No one's hearts are going to burn because you gave a five-point presentation on ancient tombs and how well Romans guarded them. You have to show them Scripture and from Scripture demonstrate to them that God has dealt with sin. He deals with it and He takes it. Now, if you don't embrace Christ, should you feel guilty? Yeah, but if you're in Christ, the guilt is put on the cross. God takes that guilt and that condemnation and kills it. That's freedom. That is freedom. Brothers and sisters, that is what we share with our friends. We're not trying to get them to come to church. We're trying to get them to understand this. Go to any good gospel preaching church. It doesn't have to be CFC. But we want our lost friends and neighbors to understand that it's not about reading the Bible, it's about the message of the Bible, which is forgiveness of sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gift of your Son. We thank you that we get to celebrate freedom from sin and that we don't have to be slaves to it, that you free us from it. 
And we pray that you would use us as your witnesses to proclaim the good news, the gospel, to those who don't have it, to those who don't see it, to those who are still stuck in foolishness and lack of faith. Father, some of us, maybe we're believers, but we are still coming around, we are still growing and learning about the importance of the gospel. We pray that you would mature us in Christ and allow it to be central to everything that we do, how we work, how we talk, how we raise our kids, how we treat our spouses, all the things that we do to be gospel-centered. We pray that we would be witnesses in our corner of the earth for this awesome message of the availability of complete, sure forgiveness in Jesus Christ. As we close in this song, God, remind us of these truths and allow our hearts to burn as we sing about Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.